Hello, hello, and welcome back to Finish That Book. I realize as I am sitting here by myself, well, Neville the cat is in here, but I'm the only person in my office right now. And uh, a couple of things occurred to me. One, in yesterday's episode, I misspoke. I don't even know the name of this podcast, whatever, Uh, recordings that I am saving as a podcast, I called it the wrong name. But the second thing I realized is that that doesn't matter because no one's listening. (laughs) So the upside is this is giving me something to do. The other upside is I'm holding out hope that there will be someone to listen, someone chooses to tune in. If not, I'm finishing an excellent book. So let's get into it. This is The Rule of Many, starting with Z. Governor's Mansion, 5 a.m. That's what a screen on a tall building says. The sky is still so dark, I can't tell the time. Does the sun ever make it through the buildings here? Skyscrapers, somebody called them. Civilians in the Capitol work early and late, just like inmates at the camps. I blend in with ease, walking the paths, looking for a way in. I've been at this for 12 hours, up and down the walkways on every side of the mansion, nothing to show for my work. Governor Roth's house is bigger than every camp warden's house times two. A 20-foot wall circles it like the gates I'm used to. His is see-through, made from a material I've never come across. It doesn't look like a common vehicle could break it open. The general is still in there. General Pierce. Guards are everywhere. Guns. Drones. No stopping, an electronic voice shouts. No stopping. Move. Move. There are more voices coming from the skyscrapers, from the screens, videos playing announcements, citizens cheer, a woman next to me spits on the ground. I try to listen, understand, learn anything new. Presidential nominee Governor Howard Roth hailed as the nation's savior. Inspire citizens everywhere to stand up against the greatest threat to the U.S. since the Great Water Wars. Texas leads the fight to save the country. The wardens told us that Texas was the country. There are more states? How many? Are they all on Governor Roth's side? One voice on a screen says Ava's back inside the U.S. She could be headed here. Mira isn't with her. The twins have separated. I don't like that. It feels wrong. I was separated from my twin. Why? Governor Roth. He's outside. General Pierce is with him. They walk a path 10 feet from his mansion, 30 feet from his wall. He's come out to greet us, a man shouts. A handful of civilians run to the wall. They wave, scream, President Roth, stay back, a guard shouts. Two shots go off. It comes from the crowd. They, they're they aimed for Roth, but the bullets bounce off the see-through wall. They land in the backs of two guards. Roth didn't cower even for one second. He keeps walking. He feels safe. No one can touch him. We will all receive punishment for those two bullets. That's the way it works, even on the outside. We have to be taught a lesson. On the ground, now, wrist up, the guards shout. Canisters are thrown into the air. Chemicals spread around walkways. Women and men fall to the ground, coughing. 
They protect their faces with hands and shirts. I can't breathe. Present your wrists to be scanned. The chemicals burn my eyes and throat, but I felt this pain before. I run. Behind me, the guard charges into the civilians, fully geared, guns firing. I hear them arrest every civilian in their path. 5.16 a.m. I get to the back of the mansion. The screams have followed me. The guards will get many points this morning. Find a way in. The time is now. I see a woman on the other side of the see-through wall a short distance away. A small bag hangs from her arm. She wears strange clothes, as many Dallas women do. Shoes with pointed heels. A long black shirt to her knees. It fits tight against her body. How can she run in that? She can't. She drops to the ground, crawls to the wall. She's scared. I watch her make it to the base of the barrier. She presses her hand against the wall. A small hole opens. A way in. I step forward, but the entrance closes on the woman's legs. She's trapped. She gives cries of pain and continues to struggle. She wants out. Who is this woman? An inmate escaping a prison? The woman in black fights herself free. She runs into the Capitol streets barefoot. She holds on to that ha- a hat that hides her face. The hole closed up again. I need the woman to open it. It takes me three minutes to find her. Fear is making her move quick, but she's surrounded. In the middle of a main street. Not by guards, but civilians. Angry civilians. It's the First Lady. Mrs. Roth, get her! The First Lady of Texas? This must be Governor Roth's wife. I need to get to her first. I push my way to the front of the circle. The First Lady is on her knees. A woman my age steps forward, slaps the First Lady's hat from her head. You should be mourning for our country, not your dead grandson. She lifts her right shirt sleeve, a tattoo, the Commons mark. See this? The Common is taking over Dallas. You don't rule here anymore. The woman kicks the First Lady in the chest. She falls to the ground. Claps. More shouts of, get her. Three civilians grab her arms and neck, bring her to her feet. I give her an 85% chance of dying before I can get to her. Take my jewelry, the First Lady begs. Take my jewelry and let me go, please. She can't break free of their hold. Begging never saved inmates in the camp. It doesn't on the outside either. The civilians laugh. Your money will not save you, a man says. He takes the jewelry and throws it into the street. He pulls out a knife. A percentage of me wants to help the First Lady. She cries like an inmate about to be sent to the Gulf. But this woman is with Governor Roth. The Roths are the wardens of Texas. The camps stay open because of them. They let women and men die, break up families. This woman had the power to stop it, but she chose not to. The First Lady is mine, I say. I charge forward. Stop when an electronic voice shouts from speakers overhead all across the Capitol, as loud as a screen gun. Mandatory curfew. Return immediately to your residence or you will be arrested. Half the civilians take off. The First Lady uses the distraction to free her arm and tear open her bag. She takes out a gun, a guard's gun. She came prepared. Stay away or I'll shoot, she says. Her grip is firm. This is not her first time holding a weapon. The First Lady turns a full circle, pointing the gun at everybody. Stops on me. Get away from me, she shouts. She pushes her hair out of her face. Up close, she looks nothing like her portraits. Now she looks worn, sad, desperate. She smells like she hasn't bathed in days. The gun clicks. 
Get away, she shouts. Get away from me. The rest of the crowd backs up, runs from danger. I don't run. It's the first lady and me, alone on the street. Don't make me shoot you. I'll do it, Mrs. Roth says. She's begging again. I pull off my hood, put up my hands, pretend to submit. Mandatory curfew. Return immediately to your residence or you will be arrested. We both stand where we are. She looks me over. The first lady's eyes go wide. Lynn, she whispers. Lynn, you're alive? The gun drops to her side. My twin. She knew her? Yes, I lie. It doesn't come easy. CG's new if you lied. Darren hid you too? The first lady asks. Yes, I lie again. She looks scared. Shakes like the starved cats that would sometimes find their way into the camps before the CGs got points out of them. She breaks down and cries. I feel nothing for her. The kittens always die. It's the way life has to be. But I need her to get to the governor. I will keep her alive. A siren sounds. The guard is coming. I can't go back there, Mrs. Roth cries. I don't know what to do. He took them. He took them all. Who did he take? I ask. Halton. Alexander. Two names I don't recognize. Who are they? I know where to hide, I say. A safe house. Cleo told me to find a yellow door. Come with me. She follows Lynn. She has no idea I'm a twin. An enemy of the state. Her state. But she will. Ava. I wake with a start. The harsh cry of an albatross screaming in my mind. My head slams back against the wall, and instead of seeing stars, I see, I see long-winged birds in flight. Tucked away in my corner refuge on the cement floor, my map draced, draped across my chest, I open my eyes to see nothing has changed inside the safe house cellar since I finally lost the battle against sleep. I fought it as long as I could, but my body demanded rest and the long hours we've spent waiting for our plane to arrive have been maddeningly endless and uneventful. With no communication out or in, I can do nothing but sit tight and think while the repercussions of my actions unfold without me. Mira, please be safe. Mira, I'm sorry if I was too reckless this time. I'm just so angry, sister. Nobody on my team trusts me anymore. They won't say it to my face, but when I scan the room, Emery, Barron, Senator Gordon, even Paul, none of them can look me in the eye. No one has spoken to me either since we entered our underground hideout well over 12 hours ago. I'm being shunned. Ah, well a day, what evil looks had I from old and young, instead of the cross, the albatross, about my neck was hung. The verse pops into my head unbidden, then my heart begins to race. Project Albatross. Why didn't I remember this before? Father reading aloud the rhyme of the ancient mariner every night in the basement for an entire month freshman year. It became an after-dinner family ritual. Mira practically memorized the entire epic poem. As I look back now, it's like he was trying to tell us something. Or maybe that's around the time he began his work on the twin gene therapy. Was he admitting his guilt to us? I filter through my memories, searching for clues or hidden meanings. Out on the open sea, being followed by an albatross was considered a sign of good luck, an omen for fair winds ahead. But killing an albatross results in a curse. In the poem, a sailor shoots an albatross with a crossbow, cursing the ship. The crew make the man wear the dead bird across his neck to be carried as penance. It's a metaphor for the burdens we all have to bear.
Were your secret twin daughters your curse, father, and Project Albatross your penance? Or was it the other way around? I wish Mira were here with me. Between the two of us, she was always more of the reader. She could help me sift through the poem and comb out any meaning about our father's mysterious project, if there is any meaning to be found. Mira is not here, but Senator Gordon is. He sits across the room with Emery, their heads bent close together, strategizing in hushed voices how best to capitalize on his public induction to the common side. Now that Roth is invading individual states, it's paramount that our side flips as many senators as we can before Roth takes hold of the entire country. Having Washington State's influential senator join with us is a huge get for the common. Mira and I are the face of the rebellion to America's citizens, but Gordon will be the face of the government. I hope he's ready. I completed half of my mission. Senator Gordon of Washington State is crossed off my list. Even if my team is angry with how I accomplished it, my spur-of-the-moment move got us what we came here for. Now I want the other objective I came here for. Information. But now is not the time. Our safe house is a tiny wine cellar stuffed with people and unspoken tension. There's no space for private conversation. I need to wait for the right moment. I'll only have one shot. To pass the time, I spread my map out across the cold floor, placing my finger on the spot where I'm now in east, eastern Washington. I trace the route to Dallas. I close my eyes and visualize myself inside the senator's airplane, cutting across the distance at 600 miles per hour. By then, all the teams have made it to the last stage safe house, and when I open the big yellow door, Mira and Rayla are there to greet me. We're still here, stuck in a cellar, completely useless to the common. The senator's plane should have arrived by now. Something must have gone wrong. Senator Gordon feels it, too. He's been pacing in small, anxious circles for the last hour. Branded traitors by association, his wife and teenage daughter are in danger from the Texas Guard and need the commons' protection. His agent had orders to retrieve the senator's family and bring them here. They haven't arrived yet, either. I know he blames me. Brow furrowed, the underarms of his tuxedo shirt stained with sweat. He glares at me every so often. It was I who forced his hand. I put his family in harm's way. And I'd do it again if I had to. Every family must make sacrifices for the cause. Mine has made plenty. Screw it. I've waited long enough. There's no right moment. Senator Gordon sits on the only real chair in the cellar. The rest are metal foldouts, surrounded by a case of wine. His head leans back against the 3D papered wall that mimes exposed red brick. He's asleep. I rise from my corner and make my move. Scanning the room, I find everyone sleeping, except Berend on guard as always. Secrets don't last forever. I know that just as well as anyone, but I'd like to keep this one close as far as long as possible for my father's sake. Tread carefully. The senator's face twists with fear, eyes moving rapidly underneath their lids. He's afraid, even in his sleep, dreaming of what's to come. It seems almost like a mercy to wake him. I sit on a wine case to his right, facing him. Calmly, I whisper near his ear, Senator. To his credit, he wakes at once, self-possessed and ready for action. Clearly habits from his past life as a doctor. He turns to face me. If he's surprised, he doesn't show it. I get right down to business. You knew my father, Darren Goodwin, I say softly. 
I flick my eyes over to Baron, who pretends he's not listening, but I know he is, or at least he's trying. It's part of his job description. The senator narrows his eyes. I wouldn't say I knew him. No, he answers. Not a great start. I try again, keeping my voice to a whisper. You were the director of family planning division for your state at the same time as my father. Did you ever consult with one another about your duties? I ask. He looks at me puzzled as if to say, is this really the time to be talking about such matters? Just ask him what you came here for. Project Albatross, I say, looking him square in the eye. What do you know about the secret gene therapy? The senator's confusion melts into disappointment. Darren went through with his trial then, he says. You wouldn't be asking otherwise. It's true. Roth really is researching how to stop multiple pregnancies. I know my father reached the human trial phase. Was it successful? I ask. Has the gene therapy been put into practice? I don't want to hear the answer. I don't want my father to break what's left of my heart, but I came all this way. I have to know. The senator places his hand over mine. There's pity in his eyes. If the twin gene therapy has already begun, it would be very difficult to stop, I'm afraid. His words hit me like a whip of fire, and I pull back fast, sending a case of wine crashing to the floor. The noise pulls everyone in the room to their feet, and they stare at Senator Gordon and me in alarm. You're wrong, I want to shout at him, but at that moment, the door bangs open at the top of the stairs. Daddy! A girl, maybe 13, barrels down the steps and into the senator's arms. She has an academy uniform on, like she was pulled out of school. A plain navy blazer and slacks, no color-coded sashes displaying rank like it's Drake. She holds on to her father tight. I have to look away. The senator's agent and a tall, thin woman who must be Gordon's wife rush through the door. She locks the deadbolt behind her before hastening to join her family at the base of the stairs. Emery emerges at my side. Any news? She asked the agent. The agent, he looks like he hasn't stopped moving since we left him at the charity dinner, addresses the senator, his voice quick and severe. Sir, the senators from Michigan, North California, and Oregon have followed your lead and have publicly backed the common. And New York? Emory presses. Reports say Senator Riggs and the commons representative Sky Lynn have been killed by Governor Cole's guard. The governor just delivered a speech rallying her citizens against the traitors. Shock breaks out across the cellar. I swallow my scream. We all knew the risks. The Texas Guard has now invaded more than just the northern border states, the agent says, extending the bad news. North California and Colorado have been confirmed. Rayla, is the transport plane still coming? I ask, my throat sore from holding back my emotion. The agent shakes his head. The guards loyal to Senator Gordon are working on it. The uncertainty of our situation, compounded with the happy family reunion right in front of my face, is too much. I have to get out of here. Now. I change back into my blackout wear in the cramped bathroom, then sit down on the lid of the toilet to think. Ever since I was a child, I've sought out bathrooms in times of crisis. At school, the stalls were a place I could find privacy. A momentary escape. At home, I used to skip out on my daily showers to lie on the bathroom floor with my eyes closed and listen to the water stream down onto the glossy porcelain tile, the room filling with steam. I realize now how incredibly privileged I was to be able to waste water like that, even if it was recycled. 
There's no running water in this bathroom, I checked, but still I've managed to find a small sanctuary. It's the one place I can find almost anywhere where I can rest from all the eyes watching me. School, home, safe houses. My knees pressed up tight against the sink. I opened the pocket-sized notebook I found zipped in a plastic baggie floating inside the toilet's tank. It's a list of names. Pages and pages of names. An archive of every person who has sought shelter inside these cellar walls. This is a station stop on the underground byway to Canada like the Cowboy Kipling's ranch in West Texas. He had a notebook just like this one. I find myself scanning the unfamiliar names line by line, as if I might recognize one. Lucia wasn't here. Stop being foolish. About halfway through page 15, I stop. Ariadne Black, mother of Cooper, Noah, and Ruby. There's a strange mark at the end of the entry, an interlocking triple spiral. My heart drops. Ariadne was a hiding triplets, much, much rarer than twins. My God. Was the woman still pregnant, or were her legal multiples already born? Either way, the blacks never made it over the border wall. I would have seen or heard of the unusual family at the commons headquarters. Ariadne was probably arrested years before my time. Anger fills the empty space inside my chest. Multiples are not a curse. We shouldn't have to hide and our genetics shouldn't be eradicated from humanity's DNA. I will stop my father's twin gene therapy before it starts. If it's already begun, I'll reverse it. Somehow. Hot tears fill my eyes, dripping onto the yellowed paper. I let them come, symbols of strength and love. I flip through the notebook to find the last entry and grab the pen inside a pouch attached to the spine. Ava Goodwin, sister of Mira. I write in my careful, cramped handwriting, so like my father's. At the end of my entry, I draw the infinity symbol, two oblong circles forming one knot. Mira, I hope I'm not too late. I hope she's found what she was looking for in Alexander because we need a secret weapon now more than ever. Mira, our transport is nowhere to be seen. Technically, we're 48 hours early for a scheduled pickup, but still... After Roth's invasions and Ava's unmasking in front of a live national audience, I figured the common would be here. They're not. It's just the five of us stashed away in a safe house ten miles from Tacoma with no plausible way out. It's too dangerous to stay. It's too dangerous to leave. We can't just sit here. I reason for the third time. Kano shakes his head, but I keep going. If we linger, sooner than later, the Texas Guard will find us. They're combing the entire state searching for Ava. I stand, looking each of them in the eye. Alexander turns away. His brow is wrinkled as his overpriced clothes. He looks like a man who's already given up. But if we move, I press, we have a chance. It's small, but it's better than waiting here for Roth to catch us. I vote we move, Theo says, rising from the unfinished maple farm table, resting his weight on his fists. You're not a common member, Kano snaps. His usual sleek topknot hangs loose and messy on the back of his neck. Chunks of silken strands fall across his eyes, giving the normally playful warrior a surly look. You don't get a vote. Sit down. Theo shrinks and plops back onto the bench. You don't have to do what Kano tells you, Miho, Alexander asserts in his clipped tone, reaching for Theo's so- shoulder. It's fine. Theo says brusquely, shrugging his father's hand away. 
He throws a fleeting glance in my direction. Theo's cheeks flush in splotches, a deep red burning across his skin. The image is so like his half-brother, my stomach flips, and I'm caught in a memory. I'm trapped inside my old house, my last night in Dallas. Around our dining table are the three Roths, the governor, Mrs. Roth, and Halton. Halton's tucking me into my chair, his cheeks stained with a flush of embarrassment and unvented wrath. It was the night fate came for me. I blink away the flashback, but I can't shake the sense that disaster is on its way. Squeezing my palm over the steel rings of my knife's handle, I move over to the window. The best course of action is to stay put, Cano argues. Rescue missions are most effective when you remain in one spot. The common knows we're here. They will come. With a cautious touch, I brush aside the dented wines and press an eye to the glass. We're on a hill. I can make out the long dirt road that snakes its way down for a quarter mile. It's clear, unlike the sky, which is heavy with the threat of rain. According to the map, we should be able to see the soaring peak of Mount Rainier. With an elevation of over 14,000 feet, the mountain is invisible through the clouds. What else is out there that I can't see? Others have changed our plans, and now we must adjust, I say, turning back to the table. Our transport won't make it here. I know you believe that, too. We have to keep moving. Always, forever, move. The mantra that powered me from Texas to Canada. How do we move? Kano asks, propping his elbows on the chipped tabletop. His gun has never left his hand. The guard has taken over the rail stations, and none of us here has the skill to hijack an autonomous car, even if there was one within a four-mile radius. I step forward and open my mouth to speak, but Kano stops me with an upraised hand. If you're suggesting walking, we might as well skip right into the guard's arms, because we'd have an hour tops before a drone would detect us. The blackout wear will work, I insist. And the scent hunters? There's too many of us to go unnoticed. We can split up, I shout over him. You take Alexander and Ciro, I'll take Theo. The suggestions met with a resounding no, but I hear one yes in the corner. Theo. I rake my oily bangs from my face and rush toward my rucksack like the decision has been made. If one of our group makes it to Dallas, we can still complete our mission. With either Alexander or Theo, we can expose the truth and win. Alexander pops up from the bench and throws his body against the jerry-built yellow door. The three stacked deadbolt locks seem to be the only things holding the rickety door up, the only protection between us and them. When I step closer, I discern names carved on the decaying wood, faded names of gluts and runaways long gone. Alexander pulls my attention back to him. You will take my son over my lifeless body, he fumes, staring me down. His spittle lands on my nose. Two kids cannot take on the Texas guard. I'm not a kid, Theo screams. I've done it before, I inform Alexander, my voice firm and unshakable. Theo throws his overstuffed backpack and storms toward me. Theo, sit down. No, we're moving. We can't hide from what has to be done. Cano grabs Theo by his backpack and makes him sit. There will be no rash decisions. Like Ava's rash decision last night? No, this is different. I've thought this through. Ava didn't. Unless our benefactor here has a helicopter on standby that I'm unaware of, Cano says, jolting me back, prompting all our necks to turn towards Ciro for the first time in hours. Ciro sits sunken at the head of the table 
his face buried in his trembling hands, on our desperate trek to the safe house with every mile more and more of his spunk and superiority drained from his jaunty spirit, fear has its claws in him. Buck up, I want to yell at him. You offered yourself up to this. Almost imperceptibly, Ciro shakes his head. Didn't think so, Cano continues. And unless Ciro's money can buy us all wings, Ciro doesn't even respond to this jab, then we are staying put. We're staying, Alexander has the gall to reiterate. I did what I was told for 18 years of my life. No more. I stand on the tips of my toes, getting as close to Alexander's face as I can. He shifts, uncomfortable with our nearness, but I won't let him turn away. I bet he can feel my pain, my strength of will. I can hear his alarm, sense his panic. I won't let it spread to me, or Theo. Theo can't second-guess what he's doing. He needs to be prepared for what's to come. He needs to believe our plan is possible. I need him to stay on my side. My eyes narrow into slits, and I glare daggers into Alexander's black, rayless eyes. I'm not scared of your father, I tell him, willing my voice not to falter. I'm not so sure, Alexander whispers, so only I can hear. Fear is healthy, Mira. Fear keeps you alive. And that is where we're stopping for today. I hope you guys are enjoying the book like I am, and I will talk to you tomorrow.